Hello. Welcome to the Arrogant Healthcare Marketing Bastards podcast for the week of March 3. <laughs> I didn't mean to do Christopher Walken there. For the week of March 3, 2014, this is episode 223, and I am Chris Bevelo, president of Interval. We're the healthcare marketing firm that puts on the podcast. With me today are... Jackie Olson, account manager with Interval. And uh, Adam Meyer, principal at Interval. Hey, guys. Hey. Hi, Ro. Did you like my unintentional Christopher Walken? The <laughs> I think we've got a show title. Marketing Bastards Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> He's the best ever. Uh, we can't talk about the weather because people are tired of it. Uh, we can't talk about the Super Bowl anymore because it's done. So we're going we're gonna to talk about some other things. How about that? What a great setup for the show. Just one update. Actually... There's probably multiple updates, but I'm not going to touch on speaking engagements yet because we don't have those posted to our website, and I want people to be able to reference those. But there are a number of them coming up starting in late April through May and June. The speaking tour begins. Uh, I do want to talk about an event we just had, or I guess it was last week. For those of you hearing this, it will be over a week now. The Joe Public Retreat. Jackie and I were down in Arizona with – Folks from healthcare organizations from around the country, a nice, small, intimate group where we dug in deep, deep, deep into some uh, pretty tricky healthcare marketing transformation challenges. Uh, fantastic uh, facility, meeting facility at the Saharo, Sawaro, Sawaro. I pronounce it wrong, near historic downtown, downtown Scottsdale. Uh, and yeah, we did. We had uh, really engaged uh, attendees who were there for two plus days and uh, some really common yet sticky, sticky issues that we dug into uh, as a big group and in small groups. And uh, it's one of my favorite things to do is get together with people that are smart and that are really struggling to try to do things in a different and better way. Wish we could do those every week. Yeah. So we'll be having... Yeah, it was good stuff. So we'll be having another one of those coming up. We have to sit down and kind of do a post-mortem to see what, if anything, needs to change and where we're going to do it and when. But the goal would be to try to have something in late summer, probably back up here in our neck of the woods where it's nice uh, in late summer. So we'll keep you updated on that. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's let's start with this article that I have. Uh, that I actually came across, oh, I guess it's been a couple weeks now. Well, it was published on February 17th. And it's it was in The New Yorker, which is not a place I typically turn for business information. Uh, I think I found it on Twitter, and I don't remember who posted it. But it's titled, it's from the financial page, and it's titled Twilight of the Brands by James... Um, Surowiecki, I believe is how you pronounce his name. And it's it's a story that, it's an article that uh, pushed my buttons in, on a number of levels. It's also a story that we've heard for quite some time. And I was trying to find the most famous example of this kind of story. And it was a, it was a, a cover story on Wired Magazine. And I thought it was in the 90s. Uh, but I tried to Google it, and I do find a, a story on Wired that I think was it called The Decline of Brands uh, that was from November of 2004. 
So let's just assume that's the story that I'm talking about, which is, that makes that 10 years old. So for at least a decade, but as long as the internet has, has been foreseen as the powerful force that it is, we've been hearing this idea that the power of brands is declining uh, or will decline is a better way to put it. <clears throat> and so this story or this article in The New Yorker is the same type of deal. It's just an mm-hmm. opinion kind of blog post. It starts with a kind of an example of Lululemon. It talks about how it was one of the hottest brands in the world a year ago. I'll just read. Sales of its highest-priced yoga gear were exploding. The company was expanding into new markets. Experts were in awe of its cult-like following. As one observer put it, they're more than apparel. They're a lifestyle. But then, which I would agree with all that. But then customers started complaining about pilling fabrics, bleeding dyes, and most memorably, yoga pants so thin that they effectively became transparent when you bent over. Mm -hmm. Hello. (laughs) I remember. (laughs) Lululemon's founder made things worse by suggesting that some women were too fat to wear the company's clothes. Nice. And that was the end of Lululemon's charmed existence. (laughs) The founder stepped down from his management role, and a few weeks ago, the company said that it had seen sales, quote, decelerate meaningfully. And so it uses this as a platform for basically arguing that brands are, that the power of brands are dead or are dying. Mm-hmm. Here's what it says It's a truism of business book thinking that a company's brand is its most important asset. That's in quotes, by the way. More valuable than technology or patents or manufacturing prowess. But brands have never been more fragile. The reason is simple. Consumers are supremely well-informed and far more likely to investigate the real value of products than to rely on logos. Absolute Value, a new book by Inomar Simonson, a marketing professor at Stanford, and Emmanuel Rosen, a former software executive, shows that historically the rise of brands was a response to an information-poor environment. When consumers had to rely on ads and their past experience with a company, brands served as proxies for quality. If a car was made by General Motors or a ketchup by Heinz, you assumed that it was pretty good. It was hard to figure out if a new product from an unfamiliar company was reliable or not, so brand loyalty was a way of reducing risk. As recently as 1980s, nearly four-fifths of American car buyers stayed loyal to a brand. But then it goes on to say that because of the internet and because of social media, this is completely broken down. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm trying to find where it actually just states that argument. Today, consumers can read reams of research about whatever they want to buy. This started back with Consumer Reports, which revealed what ordinary customers thought of the cars they bought. But what's really weakened the power of brands is the internet, which has given ordinary consumers easy access to expert reviews, user reviews, and detailed product data in an array of categories. Uh, Where does it say that that effectively means brands are dead? Okay. So in the old days, you might buy a Sony television set because you owned one before, because you trusted the brand. Today, such considerations matter much less than reviews on Amazon and Engadget and CNET. Each product now has to prove itself on its own. This has made customer loyalty pretty much a thing of the past. Only yeah. and So then it quotes, only 25% of American respondents in a recent Ernst & Young study said that brand loyalty affects how they shop. Okay. Yeah, that, yeah, There's so many say. places for me to just... Hold on. Vomit. <laughs> well, it was... But the, the, biggest, the biggest thing I want to start with... I'll, hold on, Ed. I'll start with the big <clears throat> thing, and then I'll let you guys chime in. There's a huge disconnect here between what they mean by brand and what we typically define brand as. They are defining brand as logos. So in other words, 
they're they're basically saying the power of that logo or the value of that logo is reduced because people it's no longer a opaque facade that stands for something that you can't define for yourself and because of access to information you can now find out for yourself what is good and what isn't uh, I would argue that that is not what brands are. Brands are the value that people give to a product or service and organization. That's not my definition. That's a definition put out by Marty Newmeyer, who's a well-respected uh, expert in brand. Mm-hmm. Which means this doesn't. All the things they're talking about don't mean that brands are dead. It just means you can't pull a fast one anymore. You actually, your brand actually has to be strong. It actually has to be differentiating, or people will see through that. That doesn't diminish the power of brands. It just mm. makes it harder to build a good one. Right. I totally agree. So I'm going to stop there. Um, Adam, I know you wanted to jump in because there's a lot of places that I want to blow this to shreds, but well, I, I'll stop. For I a think second. it was, I think he, there's a lot of great points or just a lot of, it's, 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 it's not off the mark until I think it gets to that, the point where you stopped in the article. Um, I didn't necessarily take it as, uh, as the, the implication was that they're looking, you know, that, that, that the, that they're looking at logos purely at this point. I mean, you know, they they start off by saying, uh, you know, you kind mm-hmm. of that to me the message I took away was that you know yeah, without true. without access to information, you know, we just kind of went back to what we were comfortable with or what we quote unquote knew, you know. Um, and that's to me that's a little <coughs> excuse me a little more than a logo. That's you know kind of coming back to down to you know what a brand is and that's the way it makes you feel, um, your perception of who they are, what they are. Um, you know, the logo is certainly stands for that, but it it's not. True, you're right. It's you're right because their example the isn't their example is Lululemon, which right. is a brand that failed at the product experiential level. Right, but that's really where it kind of as soon as you started getting into uh, the the claims that um, the brand loyalty just means nothing today, uh, that's where you start to lose me because that's just that's mm-hmm. too that's too broad of a statement. I think that the, the, the access to information has certainly changed the landscape. Nobody can argue with that. Um, things are, di- are different. And, and there's a lot of truth in the fact that, you know, the, the, the little dogs can, can play with the big boys now because it's, it's a lot easier to get yourself out there than it was before. Um, so the landscape has changed, but, you know, we've, we've mm-hmm. talked on a number of shows about, um, I wish we had, I wish I had some show numbers to, to bat, to, to reference for this, mm-hmm. but, just about there was one specific show where we talked about um, consumer choices. I think it was an aspirin or pain pain relievers, and how um, you know people, even though that the non non brand name drugs are exactly the same in the bottle as the brand name stuff, that people still go to the brand name stuff. They'll spend mm-hmm. two or three times as much because they, there's just this perception that the brand stuff is better than the generic stuff, and it's not true. Um, so I, I just, I don't think that you can make a statement quite as broad as that and really have, you know, legs to stand on because it's, um, we're, we're st- certainly still seeing uh, a lot of impact of brand loyalty. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Oh, go, go ahead, Jackie. Oh, well, I was just going to say this kind of took me aback to when he says in the old days, you might buy a Sony television set because you own one before or because you trusted the brand. I still feel like today you might buy a Sony television because you own one before because you trust the brand. Yeah, for <laughs> I sure. Mean, obviously, Not even might. <laughs> obviously, you you know, the internet and review sites and everything will play into that, but I... Right. Yeah. It, it's There's so many exaggerations in here. Um, 
you know, that statement, which is followed by today, such considerations matter much less than reviews on Amazon. What? <laughs> I, I have seen no evidence that brand loyalty matters much less right. than reviews. I'm not saying reviews don't matter or mm-hmm. access to information um, doesn't matter. Of, of course it does. But to say that, that you know, for, to one, to say that it's equal to brand loyalty would be still a stretch, but maybe arguable. But to say that it's far surpassed how you value a brand, um, right. I, I don't know where the heck they're getting their, their proof of that. And maybe it's here, which which is one place I want to, you know, call out. Because when they say that customer loyalty is pretty much a thing of the past, which is, first of all, just a – I can't believe that makes it into the New Yorker. <laughs> well, I mean, I – Look at the look at the sales evidence of of categories and tell me that customer loyalty is a thing of the past. The reason they say it is only twenty five percent of American respondents in a recent Ernst and Young study said that brand loyalty affected how they shopped. Yeah, yeah and how- which once again brings us to the same thing we say over and over and over again. What consumers say does not equate to right. what they do. Mm-hmm. Of course, people are going to say, I'm not beholden to the man. I'm independent. <laughs> but but it's not how we work. Do people literally, for every brand they choose, start from scratch, do a whole bunch of research, e- objectively evaluate what their options are, and go through some kind of mental algorithm to pick the best? No. Of course they don't. We would all die in front of our computer. <laughs> Of course we use brand loyalty. It's a shortcut, and we probably always will. It doesn't mean that all these things, again, aren't having an influence. Right. Um, but but I think the point that he starts making is valid, mm-hmm. to, to Adam's point, that that you can't hide behind – it's not Mad Men anymore. You can't hide behind controlled um, advertising channels that will basically set what people think about your your product or service – you have to have a legitimate brand that's driven by legitimate experience. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, or if it fails, like with <clears throat> Lululemon, then you're going to suffer the consequences. Um, and it's a lot easier. You to, know, it, it's a lot easier to, to to fail today. I would say with with brand. The point he makes yeah. about brands being more fragile than ever, which I think is a line he used, I think is is definitely true. I mean, with we've we see this time and time again i'm trying to think of some great example well, lululemon i mean he uses a great example right there um you know it, it with 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 social media in the way that information can be disseminated so quickly um a brand can really take you know take take a step down the ladder several rungs or completely fall off in in no time which you know yeah. would take take a pretty significant um you know act of god back with you know 50 years ago for that to happen yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think what's funny is he he cites Consumer Reports as an example of like one of the first things that ushers in this this you know this complete shift in how consumers buy things and how they you know they they do objective studies of products. I think I misread it earlier because I skipped part of the line, um, but like that's that's evidence of of the new way. And I use Consumer Reports as proof that it hasn't changed because the consumer reports has been evaluating cars for years and years and years and years mm-hmm. right so it is an example an early example a pre-internet example of objective product information that should change how people buy and i'm sure it's impacted how people bought but it is not correlated with sales of cars 
If it were, all you'd have to do is go look at how Consumer Reports ranks cars, and that would line up with how car sales are every year, annual sales. And it doesn't. It just doesn't. So it's actually proof that you can have all this data, but it still doesn't mean that people aren't going to have brand loyalty. Right. They use a, They talk earlier in the story, it says, it's been argued that the wealth of information will actually make brands more valuable. As the influential consultancy Interbrand puts it, quote, in a world where consumers are oftentimes overwhelmed with information, the role of a brand plays in people's lives has become all the more important. And then they say, but information overload is largely a myth. Quote, <laughs> most consumers learn very quickly how to get a great deal of information efficiently and effectively. Simon said, says, most of us figure out how to find what we're looking for without spending huge amounts of time online, unquote. To which I put in comment, bullshit. <laughs> That's just BS. It's BS. People may get there quickly, but whether or not they have a complete picture or an objective picture is a whole yeah. nother story. And if you think that their brand awareness or perception is not a play in that decision, that's just completely missing how consumers behave. That sounds like a, a academic who's looking at old school economic philosophies and hasn't stuck their head out of the sand in the last 30 years. It's amazing. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, like I said, it, I think there were some great points early on, but then the whole, whole article just kind of falls to pieces. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to pick apart. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, probably enough said, you know, and, and, and later on it uses Roku as an example of here's evidence that this is happening. Okay. So basically his point is this is great for consumers because now it breaks down the walls. Uh, you get a lot more choice because products can come forward um, quicker, can make an impact quicker, which is, which is true when you break down the the false walls of information, it doesn't mean that brands don't matter, though. Right. Uh, and he uses Roku as the example. Um, <laughs> Roku, a maker of streaming entertainment devices, has thrived, even though its products have to compete with similar ones made by Apple. And then it says, which is usually cited as the world's most valuable brand. Now, I'm reading that with a sarcasm that I think the parenthetical side intends. Like, Here's Apple, cited as the world's most valuable brand, having to compete with Roku. So, you know, this isn't a fair comparison, but in the fourth quarter of fiscal year 13, Apple had $37 billion in revenue and a net quarterly profit profit of $7.5 billion. All right? The best I can find for Roku is an annual revenue of $25 million. All right? So Apple profited 300 times more in one quarter than Roku pulls in as revenue in an entire year. So to use Apple here as an example of a brand, you know, like, well, that's usually the most valuable brand, and look what it's <laughs> looks what's happening with Roku. Now, that's not Apple TV versus Roku, which is a more fair example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, I'm not trying to ding Roku, but... To say that Apple doesn't have brand loyalty or power is is borderline asinine. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Yeah, and it's just, it's an odd product category to use as your example. Um, 
if you want to if you want to hold something up as a shining example, it needs to be something that people are something that's not necessarily new and emerging, something that is um, you know people are very familiar with and can actually make a decision uh, based on you know that that might be that the brand would play into a little more a little more a little heavier obviously yeah i mean it's 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 an odd product you know if he had used computers or something instead and compared you know apple laptops or something else something that people are just more familiar with right. um but you know these little streaming boxes a lot of people buy them they're not even sure what they're buying when they buy the thing you know they kind of figure it out once they get it and for a lot of people it ends up in the you know in the closet cuz they're the basement cuz they're not you know they they end up deciding that they don't want it or the tv they just bought instead has all the same stuff built into it um, so it's just, it's an odd, it's an odd product category for the comparison. I guess that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it, you know, if we want to use, let's, let's put his own words back in his mouth. I mean, he refers to GM. If, if a car is made by GM or a ketchup by Heinz, you assumed it was pretty good. First of all, if it's 1968, you assume a GM is made pretty well. <laughs> yeah. I think their brand has equaled crappy quality since the early 70s, well before the internet. Um, but let's take Heinz, okay, which, which, you know, if there's no brand loyalty, Heinz should be just one of many ketchups that we encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just did a quick Google search, and I don't even know what this resource is, uh, but it shows Heinz is the number one ketchup in seven of the top 10 ketchup markets in the world. So U.S., Japan, Russia, Germany. I mean, I, I'm sure if we found the actual data, we would find Heinz is by far yeah. the market share leader in the United States. Um, you know, I, I don't know how you, I don't know how you would debate that. Yeah. So if that's true, what he said, then wouldn't Heinz be just decimated by lack of? There's no brand loyalty. That's what it says. Yeah. Brand lo- customer loyalty is pretty much a thing of the past. Uh, anyway, probably enough whining and, and complaining about it. I just I get all bent out of shape when I see things like in the New Yorker, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, a magazine that should know better. Uh, and there's just so many flaws in this. Uh, it gets me all stirred up, and my <laughs> and my cold medication. Doesn't <laughs> <clears throat> all right, we not enough of that. Sure. We ripped that to shreds enough. Okay, uh, let's. We were promised ourselves we were going to talk about paper, um, which is the new app from Facebook. A little bit more, um, Adam. I'm going to let you talk about this a little bit more. I have to say, since the podcast where we mentioned this last, which I think was two weeks ago, mm-hmm. I haven't looked at paper, <laughs> and I know that you, Adam, deleted your old Facebook app and only use paper. I think if I did that, then I'd probably be using it every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a little fearful of doing that, mainly because I don't trust Facebook's mobile app to provide all of the content that I expect there to be, because I always see, and I don't understand why I see it, gaps between what flows through on my timeline in the mobile app and what I see on the on Facebook on the desktop. So I've always wondered why that they're not lined up. So I was fearful of, okay, well, here's another iteration that makes me wonder where I'm going to be seeing everything I want to see. So I didn't I didn't take the step you did to replace it, which is probably why I haven't gone to it. 
but it was cool for like two days and, and I forgot about it. <laughs> so with well, that, I'll let you talk about whether it probably has more staying power than that. Uh, and why, or maybe it doesn't. Yeah, no, it's, you know, it's hard to say. Um, I, I didn't, I, when I said I deleted it, I was actually exaggerating a little bit. I took it off my home screen, tucked it into a, like a hidden folder off on a second or third screen where it was still on my phone, but just not like in the home screen spot. Cause I assumed that paper in all of its beautiful glory could replace their other mobile app. Um, as far, as far as, you know, I, I, I felt like I used to notice a difference between, um, you know, what I saw on my feed on the app versus the desktop, I feel like they've done a pretty good job of, of creating parity between those two uh, feeds now. So it's the stuff that I think is maybe different between the mobile, the regular Facebook mobile app and the desktop experience, the, the browser-based experience is maybe more like the advertising type stuff. Um, as far as people's updates, status updates and photos and videos, that kind of thing, I, I, I don't feel, I feel like it's been a while since I've felt like I've noticed something uh, was on one, but then not on the other. Um, that said, I definitely share that concern with, um, the paper app and that has actually prevented me from Mm. it becoming my default choice for experiencing Facebook content. Um, so I, I, I still, it still is on my home screen. I still do use it. Um, but I do fear that I'm, that I'm missing stuff. And I, I, I say fear in quotes because it's friggin' Facebook and <laughs> I'm not, I'm not afraid of anything there aside from what they're going to do with my personal information. Um, I'm scared. I'm afeared. But, uh, yeah. So the other thing about, about paper that I've, you know, came to discover more and more after trying to make it my replacement is that it's just missing features that, always frustrated me that weren't built into Facebook app, the Facebook app, the, the regular one, but eventually were added. So things like being able to delete, um, if you make it, if you put something up, but then wanted to delete it, like maybe you had a typo or, or you wanted to edit it, either of the two, um, that was always very, it was impossible to do for a while in the regular app. You'd have to go back to the desktop to delete something. Um, eventually that came back in and you were able to delete things. Like if you commented on the wrong thing or something like that, which everybody's probably done at least once. Um, and you can't edit anything, you know, editing is something that Facebook added within you know, probably the last year, the ability to edit a comment or edit a post, you know, if you made a typo, um, so you can't do that within the paper app. And every once in a while, I need to go back in and fix some autocorrect screw up or my own screw up. Uh, you can't do that. I don't, you know, the thing, the big thing about paper is that they want to, Facebook wants to combine they want they want to become your source of news and information not just your source for information and news about your social networks but about around the world and about culture and and about you know just you know media the media the news news media um but i don't consume you know aside from interesting things that friends share Mm -hmm. i don't turn to facebook to consume news because i really have right you know, while I love sites like Dig that will introduce me, dig.com, that'll introduce me to some new uh, sites every once in a while. Um, I don't know. There's something about like Dig where the curated content is fantastic. You know, almost everything that's on there has, it interests me in some way. But as I go through the curated content in paper, it, mo- the vast majority of it does not appeal to me. You know, I added, you know, you can, and within paper, you can add these groups. So you've got these different feeds that you can kind of swipe between. So one is your personal networks feed, your typical Facebook feed of friends and, 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 and uh, the stuff that they're sharing. Um, mm-hmm. And then you can swipe through and add these other feeds. So it could be like world news or culture or 
LOL, I think is their little comedy thing. And then each of those, then there's more than that. There's like a dozen or more. Each of those has its own curated feed of content and you get to have all these different feeds of content. So if you want news, you can swipe over to the news feed. If you want to laugh, you can swipe over to the comedy feed. If you want to be entertained, you can go over to like celebrity, you know, gossip or or whatever. Okay. I can't remember what all the feeds are. Um, but I just, I don't, while I, th- I thought that was an interesting idea, as I'm flipping through what they're choosing to curate for me, it's just not appealing. I'm not liking it. So that really, for me, removes some of the um, the appeal of what paper could be. Now, if those feeds could be customized, like I could dump some RSS feeds or something into there and pull through a really cool experience of the stuff that I want to read from the sources mm-hmm. that I that I do follow, that's different. I might actually... Um, you know, Facebook could potentially become a source of that information for me, but that's a big part of what they're trying to make this app do. Um, so I guess, you know, if there are people out there who don't use something like dig.com or Flipboard or, you know, any number of curated content of curators, site curators, um, or content curators, I should say, and this is kind of their first experience to what that is and what that means, then that's cool. And hopefully people are finding that neat, but I've just, I think I'm too set in my habits in terms of where I turn to for content and the way I consume it um, to find value in the current structure of paper. Um, I still absolutely love the user interface. Uh, I like how you can kind of flip through things and there have been some things that have frustrated me. Like if you're, uh, I think one thing I flipped, I've clicked through to an article um, uh, from one of the curated or something somebody shared and it had a form to fill out for something. And I was going to go through and fill out the form. I think I was entering, uh, what was it for? Oh, it was for Fitbit. So Fitbit had a recall on the Fitbit force, which is like the first Fitbit that I've like worn all the time, but apparently it's causing right. some weird skin irritations or burns or something because mm-hmm. of the metal they use right. is the, what they suspect. So I, so I, somebody shared that on Facebook and I'm like, well, crap, I'm a force owner. So I better go to their site and see what it's all about. Fill out the form to get a return kit sent to me. Um, so as I was, as I clicked on, I clicked through to that website in within paper and it doesn't take you out to Safari. It keeps you within paper and uses an in-app browser. Um, and since paper uses all these funky gestures, kind of like these, these swipe up and swipe down to open things up and close them, as I'm trying to type into these little form fields and trying to move my cursor back a little bit to like correct a typo, the, the whole friggin' screen is like starting to fold on me as if it wants to close. So I'm, it was just the most maddening, frustrating experience trying to actually use web content within a user interface um, that's designed to be this really kind of cool swipe all over the place and see things flipping and flying and folding down and flapping all over the damn place. Um, So there certainly are limits to what you can do with that. And, you know, I'm not sure if they're going to be able to implement something to fix it so that you can actually experience some of this web interactive web content, like forums and stuff within it, because right now it's a maddening experience. So that's like 10 minutes of me ranting about, you know, <laughs> paper and how I've, you know, grown to either, I don't know, I, I've, I've fallen out of love with it. It's still on my home screen. I'm still very excited to see what they do with it. Um, I'm still kind of forcing myself to use it just to look at some of the uh, regular Facebook uh, friend feed type stuff. Yeah. But it might find its way off my phone or back to the hidden folder and my other Facebook <laughs> app might come back. 
Um, the one, uh, one other thing I do actually like about it is it's got messenger built into it. And I do have some friends who, uh, who I keep in contact with who use their built in messaging apps, a Facebook messenger. Um, Facebook has gotten so kind of greedy with wanting to get everybody on that platform that it had become very difficult. I mean, if you didn't have Messenger installed on your phone before, the regular Facebook app would continuously prompt you to install Messenger on your phone um, if you weren't using it. So you could use Messenger within the Facebook app. It was like the exact same damn thing as a standalone Messenger app. But if you didn't have the standalone app, they would kept reminding you to download it and use it. Then when you download it and use it, they keep reminding you constantly to add all of your contacts in your phone to it so that Facebook knows all of your contacts so that they can link you up with everyone and, and know exactly who you're. And I'm like, ah, so you can't, you couldn't, you gotten to the point where you couldn't use the Facebook app without being constantly prompted to use messenger. You couldn't use messenger without being constantly prompted to add all of your contacts to it. The nice thing about paper is it had messenger built in and didn't continuously prompt you to, to download con- their messenger app or add all your contacts to it. Um, so I like it for that reason too, because it's not nagging. That said, I'm sure pretty soon it'll be nagging, especially now that they bought um, uh, WhatsApp, that massive oh, yeah. second second largest social networking platform in the world is is what it's been. Uh, How much did they as. spend for that? Sixteen billion dollars. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. Lucky guy. That's insane. Yeah, and we were. I think God, it was like probably four or five years ago, four years ago maybe that we were. I think commenting in a podcast how Mark Zuckerberg was completely freaking insane for not selling Facebook for like a billion dollars or something. Yeah. No, it was the it was the um oh, founder of Groupon. Oh, is he oh. Uh, that we were ranting about. He was offered a billion dollars <laughs> by either I think by Google actually. Is that what it was? And he turned it down, which yeah, in hindsight. was asinine at the time and in retrospect even yeah. more asinine because <laughs> he was basically flushed out because he was such a poor manager and Groupon has suffered since then. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So now we've got, you know, and I know I'm pretty sure Zuckerberg was offered something at some point by, to buy it for like in the, in yes, the billions or something. he was. But he, he said no. Good he was, for yeah, him. Yeah, <laughs> and now it's, and now, yeah. And now, now he's acquiring... <laughs> Other other Everything? businesses for sixteen billion dollars a pop. Well, even even like Instagram, they acquired for I think it was three billion or was it one billion? It was either one or three. I can't Four. remember. No, I think it was. Well, maybe it was. It was anyway. It's somewhere. It was, oh, one. It was one. one. Yeah, and that was that was saw that was seen as like outrageous at the time. It was like a billion dollars. Are you crazy? And and now in retrospect, that was like uh, people are looking at that as like wow, that was a bargain. Because that that was the you know it, it, it's remained extraordinarily successful. Um, I believe it's a profitable platform now. Um, I don't know. It's it's interesting though, as you mentioned, Chris, in the last show, and we talked a little bit about paper. How Facebook is, you know, the the regular Facebook app had kind of become you know kind of like iTunes has grown to be this monstrous, bloated monstrosity of of, of crappy experience. That's kind of what Facebook was becoming. It was this mashup of all these different things, and now they're seeing the value, especially on mobile of kind of keeping some of these very unique features as kind of these standalone experiences and capitalizing on that. So it'll be interesting mm-hmm. to see what they do with um, with this text messaging platform. And in fact, we might not see a lot of what they do with it because um, yeah, I don't know that they necessarily bought it for us. I think they bought it to be more present in some of these emerging markets uh, where Facebook is not, but cheap messaging um, and the necessity for cheap messaging is. And that's the niche that uh it's more than a niche that whatsapp was filling or still is filling so 
we'll we'll keep an and eye by on the it. way yeah just to just to make this point even more acute instagram hasn't made a dollar ever in revenue really not profit not i'm not talking about profit uh, at least that's what i'm reading that's what i thought when you said you thought they were profitable adam they worked advertising they, though recently i haven't i stopped using instagram quite a while ago so honestly i'm not sure what the advertising experience is well yeah oh, i'm looking it. at something from from september so it's possible in that time i would be shocked if in that time they've instituted I, yeah i would i would be shocked as well profitable already that doesn't mean it's not a smart move by facebook i just mean it shows you how they value what they value there's a I'm going to leave you with this. There's a fantastic Frontline um, episode, which is one of the best documentary shows there is. Uh, And it's all about how companies are using social media to make a ton of money off of kids. And essentially it's because they learn so much about these kids based on their activity Mm -hmm. that they're able to um monetize that data. So it's why Instagram has a valuation of a billion dollars. It's why right, right. you know these other apps are so valued even if they don't bring in revenue, the data they provide is data that can be packaged by someone like a Facebook and sold to advertisers. Um it's quite astounding. I'm only halfway through the episode, but I was watching it with my daughter and she's like, "What?" And I'm like, yeah, you ought to pay attention to this. <laughs> Put, pull yourself away from your iPhone and look what, you know. It's not like they're being, it's not like kids are being used. Right. They just have no idea that yeah. that all this is, and that maybe it doesn't matter to them and they don't care. And that's definitely a valid opinion. Um, but I would sure like to know, you know, even for me, it's confusing to figure out how people are using all the stuff that I do to make money. Because yeah. one of the points in the show is, how come you're not making money off of that? I mean, you're the one providing the the gold. It's like we're out here mining gold and sending it off to some other company. Right, right. Mm-hmm. As consumers. Yeah, yeah. Now I was digging through my bookmarks trying to find the article that I thought had talked about Instagram uh, being profitable. And you were correct. It's not, um, that article did not reference that, but spoke about exactly what you're talking to now, the value that that, that user base um, holds for the future and the, the immediate value as well, not necessarily financial at this point, but um, just in, in what the, the information they can get from that user base and their habits. So interesting, interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Let's leave our last item for later. I think we're, I think we've, we're tapped out. We've done our job. I think we're tapped out. <laughs> I, need, I need some new Chris, drugs. Yeah, re drug. I'm on a, I'm on a head cold cocktail. <laughs> it's wearing thin I need to go re-up alright so we'll be back next week we'll talk to you then for the the arrogant healthcare marketing bastards this is Chris Pavolo Jackie Olson and Adam Meyer talk to you then